Sorry. We're rolling. <laughs> it just seems in keeping with the character of the show that <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I could capture this moment, see, for posterity. <laughs> Diane eating a spoonful of peanut butter before we start the show. I think it's just, it's worth having. Yeah, for our personal archives, think of the, think of the joy this will bring <laughs> later in life. You know. Uh, the magic. The magic and the majesty. I got myself a cup of coffee here, and I'm going to take me a sip. Of the moment. <laughs> Captured forever. Yeah, I am an exit. How you doing? I'm doing good. You're not going to finish it now? No. <laughs> <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> Okie dokie. Well, on that note, it's... 9.02 a.m. Saturday, April the 3rd, 2021. I'm Bill. I'm Diane. It's the Bill and Diane Show. You waited a long time to come in, and I couldn't get the, I couldn't get the, the, the you know, the, uh, I was a little worried about, you know, whether I'd be going, <laughs> because, of, because of the peanut butter? <laughs> because of the peanut butter. Oh, uh, yes, the peanut butter. <laughs> the threat. <laughs> Of the peanut butter. <laughs> the deadly peanut butter. <laughs> it's a lovely uh, Saturday morning here. Weather uncommittal at this point. Um, not really committing to either side, the cloud or the sun. But we've had some sunny days. It's been really gorgeous. And the, and the blossoms are popping out all over the place. And, you know, the whole springtime situation. My office is starting to be warm in the afternoons. I'm kind of going, oh, boy. Oh boy, but I'm fine. I'm fine. I've always thought that the weather in the Northwest in the spring is whimsical. Whimsical. At its own whim. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it's true. I remember yeah. this one time. I probably have spoken about it on the show before. When I was going to college, and I was at Pacific Lutheran University, and I was not used to the Northwest weather. Right. <laughs> in in Sacramento, where I spent a lot of my young years, if you have a summer day, I mean like a spring day, it's either going to be sunny all day long, or if it rains, it's going to rain all day long. It, it, it's very, Sacramento weather was quite decisive, you know. Kind of black and white, no gray area. Yeah. Yeah. And you could pretty much count that the, the If day you woke was up in the like, morning and it was yeah. raining, it was, you know. It was a stay inside kind yeah. of day. And it, yeah. But one day I was going from my dorm <laughs> down to a class that was on lower campus. I, my dorm was on upper campus, and it was about a 10-minute walk, I think. I walk out of the my dorm room. It is a sunny day. Yeah. As I'm walking to the class and going down the steps, a wind gust blew up it uh the sky turned gray it started raining then it started hailing then it started snowing and by the time i got down to the class it was sunny again and i was just like what was that (laughs) so from that time on i thought whimsical whimsical weather yeah got it especially in march it's been a hectic week here in lake amphetamine as per usual, and uh, as per usual, Diane's got a story to tell. But I feel kind of like I'm hogging the. Uh, the don't thing worry anymore. about bogarting the thing. I can I can encapsulate my week fairly quickly. Well, encapsulate. Had a lovely treehouse concert. That was a particularly nice one. Yeah. I just really enjoyed that concert. That's good. And uh, we're looking forward to Tuesday night with Neil Woodall. That is very exciting. Yes, we're very excited about that. I got a, uh, a, I've had a couple of gifts arrive, a couple of lovely cups. One of them is quite, you know, audacious, but perfect and was featured in the show. The other one came just yesterday from my friend Lori Trout. And it's a, it's not a cup, it's a shot glass, but it's got a handle on it like a cup. And it's from the uh, country music 
Museum in Nashville, Tennessee. So it's got the the handle of the cup is actually a guitar. It's very lovely. So well, thanks, and the, it was very people. in keeping with a comment that Haydn made on the. Oh yeah, when I was talking about it, I don't have room for more cups on my, in the show. And, and he, he said saying, smaller cups. Smaller cups. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I'm not sure if Lori was reacting to that because Lori collects shot glasses. Oh, okay. And so she was in, when she was in Nashville recently, I think she got that one for me, and, and it just kind of happened to arrive. Uh, the timing of it was oh, synchronous with, with, with what Haydn has said. We also got a book from, yeah. from my cousin Annie Landerholm Burke that looks extremely interesting. It's called Wonder Works, the 25 Most Powerful Inventions in the History of Literature. So it's like a tracing, kind of an anthropological tracing of when new elements were brought into literature that changed it forever. Yeah. Uh, and so it's a it's a kind of a an accounting of first instances of what of you know we don't know what but you know we're gonna find out when we read the book. I was just know? telling Anne that I was so appreciative that she got this in hardback for us because yeah. I said, you know, for me, books are like a total sensual experience, right. you know, that involves all my senses. And and I love the sound. I even commented on it during the the Treehouse concert. I was saying, oh. man, just the, the sound of the slipping of pages mm-hmm. just thrills me. I don't know what it, I, I think it's a, childhood thing when my mom and dad used to read to us or something but yeah it's just so exciting to me (laughs) so i feel like people have been so incredibly thoughtful during this Uh, they always are but it seems like there's a lot more um i don't know well little instances like these that we've yeah i've been describing have a lot more power and um, you know they they have a lot of a lot more of a visceral kind of effect because of the isolation that we've all been in for the last year. Yeah. And you know, comparatively speaking, you and I probably would have still spent most of our time during the year here in this house together doing these things that we do. But the possi- the the absence of the possibility of social contact and social interaction. Uh, especially in like musical performance because that's where we got a lot of our social contact and you know that's where we found ourselves in big groups of people and we're able to interact with lots of them including people like Annie and Robert um, and Laurie Trout and you know and Joseph Webb and the and weekly contact rather the, because they can come it uh, isn't taking them out of their you know it's not right. as as much of a, a planning issue as it is when you're going out to a concert where you've got to drive for a certain amount of time. And, you know, I'm conscious of the fact that, you know, as we get older, that task of preparing and going and getting there and stuff is, is a lot more work. And you're, you know, there are probably a lot more evenings where you're going decide, to decide, you know, I just don't think I've got it in me tonight. Yeah, exactly. And then you don't go, so... I oh, yeah. I've felt that way. There have been yeah. concerts I really look forward to, but when it got to it, I was just like, oh man, I haven't got the energy to right. do it. Right. But it doesn't take as much energy when you don't have to drive and. No, all that. it's a very short commute for me. <laughs> you know, in terms of getting to the gig, you know, I seldom have to worry about being late, although I have been a couple of times. But being late by one minute or something like that is, you know, it's casual. But anyway, and then I think about the other thing I've thought about is when, if the world becomes open again, you know, if there's music at the CNP coffee house again, and I get my first Thursday back or whatever, you know, uh, am I going to, am I going to have a poetry break? Oh, that's right. Will I, will that be part of what I do from here on? Because it seems to have worked pretty well. Well, it's interesting, too, that that so many of your the people who are attending the Treehouse concerts are not in this area at all. Mm-hmm. So it's going to allow you to, if you maintain this, you'll yeah. be able to have the 
the people who can't see you in person. And that's wonderful. I love that. Yeah. So, let's see. What else? Talked to my mom yesterday. She's doing good. Her birthday is? Her birthday is on Monday. Monday. She will be 86 years old on Monday. And, uh, what else? I guess that's it for me. So, over to you, Diane. Because you've been, stuff's been popping, man. Things have been exploding. Things have been popping and happening. Yeah. Well, anyone who has been listening to the Bill and Diane show as a regular habit (laughs) uh, knows that last week I was talking about this uh, project that I'm doing with a life coach, my my friend Shelly. And she had just started this life coach process and I had said, well, I would like to do the life coach uh, with you. And she was sort of surprised because she's younger than me and I don't think that she thought of me as a candidate for her life coaching. She was just telling me as a, a friend tells a friend. But I started this process and the way that I decided to do it was to list out all my attitudes towards money and then to also list uh, make a list of all my relatives who are influential in my attitudes towards money, including talking about the uh, the sayings that were regularly said in the household that become almost like a mantra in your mind. So I was I I have done my own. It was like my own little assignment to myself of what I was going to do during this two-week period when, um, when, uh, because I'm having two weeks between the life coaching experiences. And I love that, I love that having a coach really means that you're dedicating, you're committing yourself to this action. And because you have another witness to your uh, experience. It's just like having a physical coach mm-hmm. in some way, mm-hmm. like my Pilates teacher. The The biggest thing about my Pilates teacher, other than her giving me uh, the the basics when I first started, the biggest thing is that she, I, I have a commitment to her. Right. And so now I have commitment to this process. Right. And so I, I started writing about my grandparents and trying to give a brief biography, I didn't want it to go too far because, my gosh, you know, it could be a book for anybody. But um, but then I, I kind of ran into some problems when I was writing about my grandmother, my mother's mother. And I've always run into problems with my mother's side of the family because... There was all this aura of mystery around it. And in the ancestry, I couldn't even get anywhere with it. It was just uh, a dead end. It was a dead end. And it was a dead end at the level of my great-grandparents. I knew some details about my grandmother that allowed me to know about her mother because her mother came over to America. But her father was... I didn't even know his name. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, I knew his last name, uh, but I didn't know his first name. In fact, we had followed up in this, on this incorrect person for a long time. Mm. Looked like a lot of people who were, because there are people in my family um, from that side of the family who are also doing family trees, and they all were messed up on this uh, thing. So I was looking at Ancestry, and I very rarely, uh, I, the way that I use Ancestry is I don't sign up for a year. I sign up for a month, and then I really delve deeply into it, get as much as I can, and then I get out of it again so I'm not spending as much money on it. And in Ancestry, uh if you have some details in there, it, it kind of percolates even when you're not on the yeah, Because the other site. members of the family are continuing their work and the, and the algorithm combines all these things. Right. Right? Well, but not only that, but 
ancestry itself starts getting more documents they mm-hmm. they are opening up all these things so right. so when i came up to the site this time to look at some information about my grandmother to understand some of the years and all that i found that there was this article that came up from newspapers.com about my grandmother's engagement to my grandfather and this is a grandfather who died when my mother was three and I wanted to look at the article and you had to pay a little extra it was a this newspapers.com that is connected with ancestry but I decided because of this article I thought I'm paying that man I want to see that article yeah so I went up and saw the article and I was just enchanted because it talked about how they got engaged at this uh, at another person's engagement party that there was a party for uh, all these couples and during this engagement party of these two people my grandmother and grandfather also announced their engagement and there was another couple that announced their engagement they had a list of all the people who were there it was just delightful. Talked about them having lantern, Japanese lanterns in the... See, that's the kind of newspaper article you used to have in your local paper, you know. Somebody would come home to visit the old folks and there'd be an article in the paper about it, you know. Or someone's engagement party or somebody's wedding, there'd be a lot more detail. And then they it. would say, and so-and-so is wearing such-and-such a yes, dress. And, yeah. and you know. Yeah. <laughs> but... I was so excited to have found this article. And so that was the first excitement. But then because I now had a subscription for a month to newspapers.com, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to go in and see what else I can find. So I just started typing in names of my relatives and and was astonished that an article came up from 1918 in the Oregon Daily Journal uh, that was a story about my grandmother's history. And it had a story that no one in my family knew. No one. (laughs) Uh, Because I had talked, the day before I found this article, I had talked to my cousin Richard, and because he has a different point of view on the history. I had even spoke about it last week. Um, so, but one of the things I had asked him was, do you think grandma was a refugee? Because within the last, I want to say five years after I had been doing ancestry.com, I was thinking, you know, I think that grandma was a refugee. I don't think she was an immigrant, but I thought, well, maybe I'm just taking it too far, but it was just that I knew that her family came from Belgium during the World War One, so I thought she might be a refugee. Yeah. But Richard said, "No, I don't think she was." So, so obviously he had not heard the story, yeah. and obviously if he had not known the story, his father did not know the story. Gary had not heard the story. I had not heard the story. My mother did not know the story, but I found the story. She found the story. And it is a story. It is like a movie. Yeah. So this this article uh, in the Oregon Daily Journal had a beautiful picture of my grandmother when she was 19 with the, uh, the title on the picture, Pretty Refugee Will Sell Forget-Me-Nots. And this is the article. It has several headlines. The The biggest headline is, Pretty Belgian Lass Will Sell Forget-Me-Nots. And then the next headline, Louise Rusens, and this is my grandmother, who will assist in Tag Day campaign Thursday and her family, refugees. The story is a thrilling one. And then the last headline is, Mother and her little flock walked from native land to Holland to escape Heinies. Heinies, wow. I wonder why that yeah. became a pejorative for Germans. Anyway, 
This is World War One. I. I I always want to remind people this, this is, is not 19- World War Two. This is, this is World War One. Louise Roussens of Antwerp, Belgium, will help with the sale of Forget-Me-Nots Thursday when the big Tag Day campaign will be launched to raise funds for the relief of Belgian refugees in Belgium and France. If Miss Louise herself should ask you to buy, you will buy. Her name, you must pucker your lips all out of Anglo-Saxon lines to pronounce. From her red lips, it is charming as is the young lady herself. Fair-haired, rose-petal skin, and wonderful blue eyes, all this has Louise Roussens. But more! She has a way with her, a smile that wraps itself around your heart. She is just 19 years old, and the war broke into her life early in August when she was but a girl of 15. Their little home, where her mother, a widow, Mrs. Francois Roussens, and her Children, Marguerite, Marie, and little Elodie, and a son, Joseph, lived near Antwerp. They had a store and sold groceries. One night, at twelve o'clock, in the midst of peace and plenty, the bells began to toll. All those bells for which Antwerp is famous, little bells, quaint clock chimes, big bells, every conceivable means of alarm, set up their weird clatter, and then they learned the Germans were on the border. Men grabbed their firearms and left their homes. There was no time for uniforms. In most cases, the men went into battle in their civilian clothes. As the days passed and the army advanced, the family fled to relatives in the city and lived there for more than a year after the German occupation. The mother finally resolved to take her flock out of the country and with what money they could gather and the clothes they could wear on their backs, procession of six started on its long three-day walk to the Holland border one day in May 1916. A trusted guide, a Belgian, for a considerable sum of money, undertook to take them across and in twos, traveling by circuitous routes and by-lanes, always separated so as not to arouse the suspicion that a family was moving, they made their way. They slept in cornfields and in the streets, as no Belgian family could take them without arousing the suspicion of the Germans, which were billeted in every Belgian household. Footsore and weary, too nervous to eat, even the pitiable, scant fare Belgian friends could spare them, they trudged along. Just once their success was held in balance, when a German officer stopped Louise and her older sister and asked their destination. Contrary to the mother's rules and all former precedent, the older sister smiled amiably on this soldier, which was a rare favor to a German officer coming from a pretty Belgian girl, and he, in turn, was kindly. She tossed her head carelessly and said, Oh, to my aunts, and named a little town by mistake through which they had already passed. He referred to his map and was puzzled, but she feigned not to understand and smiled on. In desperation, she said, This way, I will show you. And he accompanied them. A cafe loomed at the turn of the road, and the girls went into the good Belgian woman at the bar and cried, Auntie! She understood and folded them in her arms affectionately, though she never laid eyes on them before. The officer, convinced, made his adieu and rode on, while the rest of the little band who had been hiding followed after. Hidden in hedgerows and fields, they finally covered the weary miles and then watched their chance between the change of guards to cross the border. One last ordeal came in wading the canal where the water came up to their necks. Friends were many in Holland, and from there they went to London. We could have been cared for by wealthy people in England, as people cannot do enough for the Belgians who flee there for refuge, said Miss Rusens. But mother would not have help, so we all went to work in the big ammunition factories where there are all French and Belgian refugees employed. After more than a year there, a sister of Mrs. Rusen's, Mrs. Alfred Jorgensen of Portland, wrote for them to come to Portland, and last fall the mother and the three youngest children arrived, the others following. Yeah. 
the idea that that particular story would have been printed in a newspaper just seems, uh, I don't know. I mean, it, I understand why at the time it would have been printed, but for you to find it, I mean, when you think of the the years and the, you know, I don't know, who scanned that article into newspapers.com? Well, and that's why I wonder whether this wasn't available that they just oh, yeah. got a hold of these archived Oregon daily journals because it didn't show up anything before right. that article about the engagement of my, um, Your grandparents? of my grandparents had never showed up in ancestry before. Mm. And then I just, uh, I just was so enchanted by this because, uh, the way that I live my <coughs> life, I was telling Bill, I, I, I feel like it's, just my my curious way of viewing life that I feel like magical things happen all the time and you can either recognize it as magical or you could think of it as oh it's coincidence yeah. but I think coincidence is magical right. in a way too right. Right. so I had put forth this sort of prayer to my ancestors um as I had done once before in um, in Portland when when I was going through my mom's stuff and feeling so um, so shattered by her demise. I mean, the beginning of her demise. And I feel like when I speak to my ancestors that they respond. Yeah. And I was the reason I was asking them now is because I realized that my fears had an irrational element to them that I thought must come from family You had a sense of that there was information that you needed that was missing from your understanding and that your understanding need to, needed to be expanded. Now let me just tell the listeners here, just as an aside, as an observer, as a witness, as, a, as, as an audience member to Diane's particular form of artistic life, I have to tell you that as a witness, it always looks like magic. It doesn't look like coincidence. It looks like someone who has the sense to ask the right question at the right moment and always gets a response, always gets and finds the thing that she needed to fill in the blanks. And as an observer of this phenomenon, and I know I've talked about this before on the show, <laughs> I just have to say it is... It's it's dazzling, it's like it's it's an experience that cannot be interpreted as coincidence because it is a practice that Diane is involved in. Uh, it's it's an, a natural kind of curiosity that she possesses that is unlike anybody's I've ever known. And when you witness this happen again and again, you're like, okay, she's got she's got connections that the rest of us are just kind of pardon me i'm having a drink of coffee you know harry ferrying around about it <laughs> and not really you boy getting that's good coffee and we we think yeah yeah well if i believed in magic then maybe but you know diane is a practitioner of these arts and it is dazzling sorry i didn't mean to. oh no i yeah. i feel humbled by your whatever statement whatever. but but the thing that I have believed for a long time is this is, I feel almost like Parsifal on the quest, you know, mm -hmm. that I wasn't asking the right question at the right time, right, you know, right, right. that I finally knew the question to ask, right. which was the question I was asking is, tell me about how you survived. Right. Because I suddenly realized that a lot of my own, anxiety which i have carried in my my little brain since i was a child i've always been anxious about things being overturned like oh yeah things are great now but they can easily uh, i could easily end up in the poorhouse that right. has been something in my head ever since i was a child and this was the first year that as I was planning for retirement and realized that this was coming up really viscerally, as you said last week, mm -hmm. that I suddenly thought, wait a minute, does this come from me? Does this come from 
a family of immigrants that uh, that did have a certain amount of their whole lives were overturned. But I had no idea about how much my grandmother's life had been overturned. I had already been writing a list of all the traumatic things that my ancestors had gone through. And in my grandmother's list, I had already had like loss of home and country and World War One, and but I had no idea because I did not know the history of Belgium during World War One, that they had Germans billeted in their households, and that they had. I've looked up some history since that they had electrified barbed wire fence between the borders, and that that was why they would have been crossing by the canal, and that they, that Germans were asking people where they were going, that they could not just roam freely in their own country. And they were lining citizens up and shooting them, and, you know, just for no reason. It was just kind of, you know, it was, it was a bad time. So I, uh, now, all of a sudden, I had the name of a brother, which I did not know. I knew about Marguerite, Elodie, and Maria, because uh, I, I've actually known Elodie, um, but I used to hear my grandmother talk about them, but not so much about Joseph. And uh, so I thought, well, what happened to Joseph? Was he killed? Or, But then I found out that he also came to Portland, uh, but not with the family, uh, that he was drafted in the war. And um, so then I had his name, and I had the name of my grand- my great-grandfather that I did not know, and then as I was searching on Ancestry, I saw that there was a guy who had the same Francois Rusins in his tree, but it was a different year. Mm-hmm. So I wrote to him and just asked him, I told him sort of the details and said, is this any relation in your tree? And he wrote me back and said um, that he, because he lives in Belgium, he has found certificates and things that uh, that trace my family back to the 1700s, and he asked if he could get my email so I could he can send it to me. And he was saying, I haven't found that we are cousins yet, is the way he put it, but uh, but I'm sure that we are related in some way. So that tells me that maybe Rusens is not that common a name, and um, so. It's just been such an an amazing exploration. But last week I was talking about how I felt like I was just laying my flowers at my ancestors' feet. Mm -hmm. And I think that the the magic question was, how did you survive? And so I was telling my life coach about this, and she was just stunned by this story, you know. And, uh, and I also read to her uh, part of Carl Jung's book uh, that I mentioned last week. I, I talked about it last week, but I wasn't quite sure about whether I remembered what he was trying to achieve by the quote mm-hmm. that I, I somehow remembered the gist, but I didn't remember the quote. The context. So I actually purchased the book, and... Uh, I knew we had a copy of that in the house. I don't know what the heck happened to it. Somebody stole it, Diane. Well, I read it on Kindle before, and well, I, I just did didn't too, want I to read... I, I didn't want to search around on Kindle yeah, for it, so... I, ordered, I swear I ordered a copy of it in paperback, that very edition that you're holding, because you know, I knew I'd want to go back to it, and I wanted it on my shelf. I didn't want it just on that dumb machine that broke you know, a couple of months later. But I found the quote that is just so amazing. And uh, it doesn't matter. It starts with I when I was working on the stone tablets. It's, it's the rest of the stuff that's important. When I was working on the stone tablets, I became aware of the fateful links between me and my ancestors. I feel very strongly that I am under the influence of things or questions which were left incomplete and unanswered by my parents and grandparents and more distant ancestors. It often seems as if there were an impersonal karma within a family, which is passed on from parents to children. 
It has always seemed to me that I had to answer questions which fate had posed to my forefathers and which had not yet been answered, or as if I had to complete or perhaps continue things which previous ages had left unfinished. It is difficult to determine whether these questions are more of a personal or of a general, collective nature. It seems to me that the latter is the case. A collective problem, if not recognized as such, always appears as a personal problem, and in individual cases may give the impression that something is out of order in the realm of the personal psyche. The personal sphere is indeed disturbed, but such disturbances need not be primary. They may well be secondary, the consequence of an insupportable change in the social atmosphere. The cause of the disturbance is, therefore, not to be sought in the personal surroundings, but rather in the collective situation. Psychotherapy has hitherto taken this matter far too little into account. And the thing that that astonished me about that is because I have been dealing with my anxiety about retirement as a personal problem. But when I took it just by a natural impulse into a collective that, uh, that I started thinking, maybe this is messages that I received from family sayings, from family histories that were around me. And when I talked to my brother and my cousin and found that their attitudes towards money, even though my cousin is in a different financial status, very wealthy, and my brother and I are around the same status, and we are not wealthy, um, the, the idea that we all had the same attitudes towards money, that when I listed them out, I think this, I think this, I think this, and and realizing, yes, we all have this, even to the point where my brother brought up something that I hadn't considered, which was this absolute repulsion towards gambling, that it actually, he said the first time he ever gambled, he had a very similar situation as to what I had, too, that somebody had taken him to a gambling place and they had given him money to gamble, so it wasn't his own money because he was not going to gamble. And he said even though that happened, that he his palms were sweating, that he was so uh, averse to it. And I said, that exact same thing happened to me. And I just found it so repulsive. So I find it fascinating that we have always thought that our own anxiety is about money because we none of us ever talked about it. You know, it's one of those, those things that people don't talk about you're not supposed to talk about money right. or your it's attitude in, towards it's money to talk about finances yeah. and mixed company or whatever so you always have this feeling like it's taboo to talk about what your feelings are towards money but when i open this this topic up the idea that money has a different focus than the actual physical item that there's a survival element in it and that we are all kind of just trying to survive in this life. And what we do in our perceptions to help us survive and how they may come from another place, not from our own psyches alone, that it's something that was taught to us and that other circumstances may have affected that teaching. It's been like a life-changing week for me. When I talked to Shelly, my life coach, about it, and she was just like jaw-dropped the whole time that I was talking, and she said, oh, my God, Diane, you have done so much in this. She said, what, what do you see as the next steps? And I said, well, right now I feel like my ancestors are actually pleading with me to release them. And she said, how do you think you can release them? And I said, by releasing myself. You know, I need, this is something that's carried forward and it's not that they wanted to carry it forward. And I'm in a different circumstance. I am not in the same place that they were and I have the ability to release myself from this. 
by finding more information and by talking to more people. So now I'm, I've been talking to friends who have retired and, or are on the verge of retiring and asking them their stories. And it's been amazing to do that. It's an amazing time because there's nothing we have to fear from each other. It's not like yeah. I'm going to try to get their money from them right. or that right. or that we're in any place in our lives right now where we're we're thinking, "Oh, I'm envious or we've accomplished it all." This is this is like clearing the decks, yeah. you know, yeah. for a new stage of life. So that's my story. Congratulations. Congratulations. It's fun to watch it happen. I'm very interested. Uh, right now, I've been doing a lot of uh, investigating into the Belgian occupation because now I'm wondering, did my grandfather die of natural causes? I mean, was he ill or was he shot? You yeah. know, we don't know those things. Right. So. And then there's the music, which Diane also picked this morning i was you know i'd asked her last evening if she had any music in mind for today and she said no but i'm sure i'll think of something tomorrow <laughs> and, so you know i'm upstairs doing my dinky stuff you know this morning <laughs> Your dinky stuff <laughs> and i get a message from diane directing me to these two songs and they're absolutely ideal well, one funny. of them is taken from a, a, a piece of of musical history that I think more people should be aware of. Um, Pete Seeger had a TV show back in the early mid to mid sixties called Rainbow Quest. And there are, there is a pretty good, a pretty sizable library of full episodes on YouTube. If you search for it and some amazing guests, Elizabeth Cotton and, and Huddy Ledbetter and, you know, uh, Donovan and you know Judy Collins and Peter Paul and Mary and Bob Dylan and you know all these people from that era were guests on this what I believe was a live telecast from a public television station somewhere in New York State uh, that he did for a few years back then and it's just delightful it's delightful because it's got a very live feel to it and it's got a, a general shape, and Pete's the host, and he's always singing songs, and he's got all these guests, and they're singing songs together, and it's just, it's like a little hootenanny on the airwaves, and it's really worth seeing if you're interested in, you know, that era and uh, those artists. It's really a lovely uh, collection, so I wish I could own the entire series, and I've never investigated that. I wonder if it's available. Because it's just it's just fun to watch and to see all these people that are long gone now. Some of them aren't, but some of them are uh, actually alive and playing their music. It's it's quite amazing. Well, I think so. everyone will recognize that this is once again another lane of my flowers <laughs> at the feet of my ancestors. Right. Maybe because I sing this song a lot, and I'd like to have you sing it with me if you would. Uh, this is one that that you know because you wrote the melody to it. Well, let me hear it. All right. And I think it's wonderful that this, this particular song, this quotation from Ecclesiastes is such a, a well-loved quotation. A time to build up, a time to break down, 
A time to dance, a time to mourn, a time to weave, a time to gather stones together. make me proud. You know, I could die tomorrow and I'd die happy in a way to think that other people were singing my songs. Inside the old kitchen, they bend and they sigh. 
but most of all it is me that has changed and yet still I'm the same that's me at the weddings that's me at the graves dressed like the people See you.